Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife, and I'm excited to say today is another installment of the Big T Trauma Series. My name is Patrick Georgioff, an acute care surgeon at Wake Med in Raleigh, North Carolina, and joining me today are two of my former co-fellows at the home of Big T Trauma, the University of Texas in Houston. We've got Dr. Teddy Puzio, who is currently faculty at UT and assistant PD for the Acute Care Surgery Fellowship, and Dr. Jason Brill, who's currently living the life in Hawaii and serving with the Marine Corps unit and part of his time is devoted to the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command as its trauma medical director. Now, we got a very serious uh, topic today, and that's, that's brain death. And this is a complex situation. The diagnosis of brain death adds to what is already, you know, an immensely complex scenario and what is inevitably a devastating situation for family and friends. And, and patients and their family deserve clarity when it's needed most. And that's why a very thorough understanding of brain death and its diagnosis is so important for healthcare providers and so important for trauma surgeons and residents, fellows, everyone. And uh, I should note that what we're talking about today, what we're going to discuss is brain death in the adult patients only. Uh, There certainly are some nuances uh, when it comes to diagnosing brain death in the pediatric population. Uh, I would probably start off a little bit, you know, in the beginning with a bit on pathophysiology of brain death. So the brain injury results in brain swelling and increased intracranial pressure. Uh, this leads to compromised blood flow to the brain. And then this just further propitiates the hypoxic injury. Once the intracranial pressure exceeds the mean arterial pressure of blood flow to the, um, to the brain, it, the flow completely stops entirely. At that point, the brain may herniate through the foramen magnum. Is essentially how it how it works. A vicious cycle. Patrick, um, yeah, thanks for having us on such a light and cheery topic. Um, yeah, but uh, I'm I'm with you in that you really need a very good understanding of this um, because it's very misunderstood, I think, uh, by the lay public and and honestly even some providers. Uh, so to take Teddy's discussion of uh, pathophysiology a, a step further, normally the brainstem is the last part of the brain to suffer irreversible anoxic injury. At least that's what you're going to see the majority of the time. And when that happens, there are also a multitude of homeostatic disturbances that accompany uh, that last step uh, that leads to the diagnosis of brain death. And you can see that in terms of hemodynamic instability, uh, endocrinopathies, hypothermia, among others. Yeah. And what's really interesting is the concept of brain death came into existence only in the 1950s. And that was after the introduction of positive pressure and mechanical ventilation. So prior to that, brain dead patients would rapidly succumb to hypoxic arrest. And the first widespread clinical definition of brain death, which was known as the Harvard Brain Death Criteria, was published in 1968. And since then, there have been many definitions, protocols, 
and guidelines that have been created all around the world to try to manage, uh, again, this very complicated situation. Yeah, it's pretty crazy when you look back. So really uh, in the early 1980s, uh, 1981, the Uniform Declaration of Death Act was created by a presidential commission and approved by the American Medical Association and the American Bar Association. Uh, so the term UDDA states, an individual who has sustained either one, irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions, or two, irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, is dead. It goes on to say that determination of brain death must be made in accordance in accordance with accepted medical standards, which leaves so, that you know, interpretation. Broad interpretation. Yeah, so, um, so that's the UDDA, um, but unfortunately there is not a single nationwide you know, code or statute that covers this. Um, fortunately, all states, including the District of Columbia, have adopted the UDDA, at least in in the premise of how to state someone is dead via the route of brain death. Um, I, I should mention, though, that many states have added additional regulations, including how and when this can happen, number of exams, et cetera. And we'll get into the details of that in a second. Um, so as with a lot of the podcasts that we do in the Big T Trauma, the, uh, Big T Trauma series, defer to your, your local regulations, hospital protocols, and, and state law, uh, especially in these cases that uh, it's not perhaps as straightforward as others. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a few parts of the uh, Uniform Declaration of Death Act that deserve some farther emphasis. So the first is that the brain dead patients are just as dead as the patient whose heart has stopped beating. And that's you know critical to understand, and it seems, you know, again, uh, uh, for good reason uh, that the lay public is often confused about that. And as Jason mentioned too, sometimes even within the hospital, there is some confusion. Now, the second part about this is the UDDA states that the entire brain must be dead, and this differentiates brain death from a persistent vegetative state or a minimally conscious state. Okay, and the third. This, this statement that determination of brain death must be made in accordance with acceptable medical standards. This mandate introduces countless questions, yeah. right? Very so, great. <laughs> right? So what, what exactly is the accepted medical standards? Jason, you mentioned it's, it's yes, the UDDA has been accepted, uh, but what, what's the medical standard? Who makes this determination? Is it the same in every state? Is it the same in every hospital? And if you look into it, the answers, you know, vary and, uh, it can vary to some significant degree. And this complicates an already complicated situation. Yeah, so fortunately there are um, some standards though that we can go back and rely on. Um, so for a number of years now, the gold standard in the United States, um, this is um, something that was published in, in 2010, originally from the American Academy of Neurology or the AAN. Um, and this document really served as the basis for hospital policies and guidelines, or at least we hope it did in most situations. It's, that's been my experience at least. And, and while useful, the AAN guidelines still have left some questions unanswered, uh, which again, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll go into in as much depth as we can on the podcast here. Yeah, no, it's interesting because you have national laws and state laws that offer some clarity. But ultimately, the determination of brain death is really left up to the individual institutions. You know, you can be at, at one hospital and what your guidelines for brain death are 
are totally different when you go to a different hospital. And sometimes they're up, they're left up to individual providers. And obviously um, that is problematic, can be problematic. In fact, there was one study of 508 unique hospital policies found that determination of brain death was still highly variable and I quote, not congruent with contemporary practice parameters. Right. And the determination of brain death is understandably difficult for loved ones to process, but it is definitely made more challenging when the process is mishandled. And there are countless examples of incorrect diagnoses, poor communication, and legal challenges uh, that have all made their way into the media. And these stories definitely fuel public distrust. And for example, this is a clip from a production called Real Science Radio. Today's program, Real Science Radio's list of brain-dead patients who have recovered. Brain-dead and recovered. Bob, this is going to be a great topic. These are actual patients, right, in hospitals who have been diagnosed as brain-dead. And they've recovered. It's supposed to be impossible. It is. So this list of real-life examples of people who recovered after being pronounced brain-dead shows that doctors in hospitals are sometimes dead wrong. Yeah, they are. All right. Despite all that outrageousness, uh, it's really, really important to note that there is not a single documented case in which appropriate application of brain death testing led to the inaccurate determination of death. And no patients had return of any type of brain function, including consciousness of any kind, brainstem reflexes, or even ventilatory efforts. So when appropriately applied, the criteria and the guidelines that we're going to talk about are uh, extraordinarily accurate in, in diagnosing a patient as brain dead. Okay, so let's let's fast forward a decade later. We talked about the 2010 AN guidelines. In 2020, the World Brain Death Project, it's a large international multidisciplinary panel, published a very robust consensus statement further clarifying the determination of brain death. And this guideline sought to, quote, harmonize practice and improve the rigor of brain death determination, unquote, which, of course, is was very needed and still is. Yeah, I mean, they, and if you haven't read this, you certainly should if you work in this field. I mean, the authors should really be commended for their vigorous work um, and, and offered a lot of clarity. I agree with you, Brill. Uh, the World Brain Death Project should be almost mandatory for anyone who's going to treat patients with brain injury, especially if you're going to be in an ICU. The recommendations from this paper are basically serve as the basis for the recommendations, you know, for policies that fall out of it. And certainly the stuff that we're going to talk about on the episode are from, you know, that, th those authors work. Yes. Yeah, so we should note that the link to the paper can be found in the show notes if you're looking for it. Right. So let, let's get down to it. You know, what do you need to know about how to formally declare a patient brain dead? Now, first things first is that the determination of brain death is a clinical diagnosis. And to make that clinical diagnosis, each of these patients that we're going to proceed with brain death testing on have to meet some specific criteria. So I'm going to rattle off a number, many of a number of these different criteria, many of which you've probably heard already. So the first is the patient has to have a diagnosis that is consistent with brain death, right? They have to have trauma, uh, terrible stroke, whatever it may be. Um, second, that they should not have any known confounders or possibility of pathologic conditions like Guillain-Barre or locked-in syndrome, something that can mimic brain death. Third is that you need to make sure there's no CNS depression drug effect present. And certainly a toxicology screen may be indicated, uh, as we often get in our uh, trauma patients who arrive in the trauma bay. 
And there are some specific guidelines that come from the World Brain Death Project, which are super, super interesting in your, uh, and helpful in your day-to-day -day practice. And that includes the recommendation that if you use sedating medications, propofol, fentanyl, et cetera, it's recommended that you wait at least five half-lives until the start of clinical testing, perhaps longer if the patient has hepatic or renal insufficiency. They also go on to give you specific levels of drugs. For instance, barbiturates, uh, the serum level for barbiturates must be less than 10 micrograms per ml or if the patient was drinking, alcohol levels must be less than 80 milligrams per deciliter in order to proceed with your clinical testing for brain death. You also wanna make sure the patient's not paralyzed. So using a train of four um, to check for paralytics is recommended if the patient had received any. This is a little bit broader, but the patient should also have no severe acid-based electrolyte or endocrine abnormalities. And that's, that's again, pretty broad. You might think of something like uh, uremia or liver failure when it comes to uh, something severe enough to interrupt or interfere with your brain death testing. That one's a little variable institutionally too. I think that, to me, it seems like that one, I, I remember at different hospitals kind of, it's a little bit different across the board. Yeah. I think like everything that's, else, that's the one, that's the one I run into on a, a fairly regular basis of what really counts as severe. Um, you know, obviously if the sodium is 108, okay, got it. But what if the sodium is just below your reference level uh, and it's been there for a few days? I, I have run into other providers that say, well, we, we can't go forward from this. So I, yeah, it, some of these guidelines, even though they're more specific than they used to be, there's still room for, for disagreement, unfortunately. Yeah, it'll never be uh, uh, totally black and white, but we will go on to talk about things like ancillary testing. So if you do have folks, providers, yourself, et cetera, that are disagree or worried about uh, do you meet this criteria? Then ancillary testing is recommended, you know, brain, uh, flow, flow studies, et cetera. We're going to dive pretty deep into that in a little bit. Two more right. things I want to mention. Core temperature greater than 36 degrees. And specifically, if the patient was managed with targeted temperature management, for instance, out of hospital cardiac arrest, uh, they you should not initiate brain death testing until 24 hours after the patient is completely uh, rewarmed. So again, more specific guidelines for specific patient populations. And last, systolic blood pressures has to be greater than 100 millimeters of mercury or a MAP greater than 60. And you can go ahead and, you know, vasopressors are um, permissible uh, to reach those goals. Yeah, which is another great point where I have run into uh, folks that are very concerned that somebody is not hemodynamically stable because they're on a consistent dose of, you know, vasopressin in the background plus, you know, a little bit of levofed that we're titrating as well. You know, does that count as instability should we be going forward with the exam but as as you state in the guideline uh, vasopressors can be required as long as you've gotten to uh, at least your definition of stability and I, I haven't personally seen hospital protocols that are more exacting than that so again just more more room for discussion some of these that that still you know, are going to require perhaps some collegiality uh, with with you and your partners well, and to be clear, uh, bro, real quick yeah, before no, we go on too, I mean, if the patients, they can be on as much pressure as you want. The, the systolic blood pressure is greater than 100. That's all there is to it. Um, you have to meet all these criteria. And we'll talk about again also today the importance of documentation. Uh, the World Brain Death Project has all these these different criteria and, and details on how to do perform testing, et cetera, in the document that you can pull out. But this also leads to the, to the importance of having robust guidelines at your institution. And then also robust documentation, including things like checklists. So you can knock all these things off. Um, uh, you know, there shouldn't be anyone that says, well, we can't test this patient. 
uh, for brain death because they're on uh, a couple pressors. Absolutely, you know, not right, other right. criteria. And uh, totally, totally agree with that. In fact, some sometimes because I, whenever I have a, a case that is nearing, um, you know, this, and I think there might be disagreement, I often just print out the guidelines either at the local hospital or um, if there's a, a larger protocol or state you know, statute that applies. Sometimes that's nice to show up at the bedside with just to say, you know, I'm not making this up. Here's what it is in black and white. This is the accepted standard. So, so in any case, patient meets all the above criteria, then you can go forward with testing. Um, I'm not going to go through all of that right now, but just in general, remember that testing includes absence of, ar of arousal to maximum stimulation, pupillary reflexes, oculocephalic and oculovestibular reflexes, corneal reflexes, motor response to pain, and absence of cough and gag reflexes. What happens when I can't finish this exam for some reason, which inevitably yeah. <laughs> will happen? No, it, hap it certainly happens, um, not that infrequently. Um, but if you can't do a portion of the exam, you should do all the other things that you can do. So essentially complete it to the fullest extent possible. Um, and we're going to talk about here in a little bit about why an exam might not be able to be completed and when you should perform the term is ancillary testing, which we'll kind of define and go into. And one interesting point, um, at least everyone listening to the, to this podcast, foregoing testing of the oculocephalic reflex um, when a patient's cervical spine, for example, has not been cleared, doesn't negate the remainder of a complete clinical exam. Again, ask, ask me where I've seen that. So again, the presence of a cervical collar doesn't negate the completion of the remainder of that clinical exam. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're listening to the Big T Trauma Series, you're probably interested in trauma, and that's you'll hear that very, very frequently. So again, you have a complete exam, you go through it all, but you don't do the oculocephalic reflexes because the patient's collar or spine has not been cleared, that's okay. World Brain Death Project recommends and tells us that if it's everything else is complete, you're still good to go. So keep that in mind, uh, especially when you're getting some pushback on that. You don't have to uh, feel uncomfortable about taking the senior collar off and performing dial size. Now, in addition to what uh, you talked about, Brill, the brain death exam also requires a single apnea test be performed. And the goal of the apnea test is to trigger the respiratory system, uh, specifically in the medulla, by allowing serum carbon dioxide levels to rise. And in general, it's recommended that an apnea test be performed after clinical testing is found to be consistent with brain death. And really, you should probably also temporarily place the patient on a spontaneous ventilator mode and just observe them shortly to make sure that they don't have any uh, signs of breathing, that they have an absence uh, of respiratory activity and effort. And it is uh, important to note that apnea testing is contraindicated in patients with high cervical spinal cord or phrenic nerve injury. So this is, again, apples to some of our trauma patients with high C-spine injuries. And uh, most institutions have their own protocols for apnea testing, and the World Brain Death Project has their own or makes some general recommendations as well. So again, I'm going to rattle through a few of these specific points. So the first, you pre-oxygenate the patient. 100% FiO2, World Brain Death Project recommends you do it for 10 minutes. You also need to make sure that the patient is normal carbon, because you want to adjust the vent and get that PACO2 between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. And you have to prove that with a gas before you embark on your apnea test. And interestingly, the, the patient is also going to be oxygenated, typically uh, via a tracheal cannula. So you, you physically disconnect the vent and put a uh, oxygen cannula down uh, into the endotracheal tube and essentially to the level of the crina, or at least into the trachea, running oxygen yeah, basically, oxygenation of the patient. 
yeah, blow by oxygen. So if you haven't seen this before, it's very, very simple. The nasal cannula just grows right over whatever airway you have in place and you turn up the flow of oxygen. So at least that there's uh, there's some blow by to maintain your oxygenation during the test. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, Patrick. No, yeah. And there's lots of different ways to set it up. But um, uh, again, most of the protocols will have whatever the local preference is. And what you're shooting for is a PaCO2 that's greater than 60. All right, that's your trigger that's to say that you've had a successful apnea test. Now, unless the patient has pre-existing hypercapnia, which in which case you want your PaCO2 to be greater than 20 millimeters of mercury above the patient's baseline. And if you get to that mark, PaCO2 greater than 60, and the patient doesn't breathe, that is consistent with brain death. Now, there are reasons that you might need to abort the apnea test. And that's if there's spontaneous respirations, that patient's not brain dead. Or let's say the patient becomes hemodynamically unstable, um, or their oxygen saturation drops to below specifically 85%, or they have an unstable cardiac rhythm. All these are reasons to abort the uh, apnea test. And if the re remainder of their exam, again, presuming they're not breathing, is consistent with brain death, that's when you proceed with ancillary testing. Now, when you draw a blood gas when performing an apnea test, typically 10 minutes after you started. Real, uh, one of the other confusing topics is the number of exams. So are we obligated to perform multiple exams on these patients? Yeah, so um, yes and no, I guess is the answer to that. Um, the, the number of clinical examinations required to pronounce a patient brain dead, unfortunately, varies by country. Okay, that one I'll accept state, a little more complicated, and, and even institution. Uh, going back to the World Brain Death Project, they state that a single clinical examination and a single apnea test is the minimum standard for declaring brain death. Uh, now, in the U.S., some states then go on to stipulate the number of exams that must be performed. Throw out a couple of uh, examples. Uh, California, Florida, Iowa, Kentucky, they all require two physicians. On the other side of the spectrum, Alabama, Georgia, Virginia, they just require one, although some local institution guidelines then require two exams, even though the state law only says one. So just, you know, clear as mud. Yep. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So, so I, I want to go off on a, a quick tangent, if I can. So uh, Patrick and, and Teddy, let's say you're, oh, wow. doing, you're doing your apnea test and the patient gets hemodynamically unstable. So you, you stop or rather you resume your, your previous vent modes, but things keep spiraling and all of a sudden they go into you know, cardiac arrest during your apnea test. Not, not something you wanted, but when has that happened to you and what did you do about it? I've never had it happen. Do have you, Teddy? I, no. I mean, I've never had I've that. Had people get unstable. I, for like, sure. Like they 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 get a little hypoxic. I push a little more pressure, and then you say, "All right, we're not doing this. We need an ancillary study." Yeah. I've never. Have you had anyone arrest, bro? 
Um, yeah, I guess I'm the unlucky one. Um, I, can, I can only remember one. Uh, and fortunately, the patient's family uh, had already determined, you know, DNAR uh, status, although they were okay with continuing intubation um, and mechanical ventilatory support. We we had talked to them about this test we were going to do and just confirmed basically the DNR status before we started it. Um, but, uh, you know, and that was... That which was really is really... Career. Well... And we're talking about all this stuff uh, very specifically, right? We're talking about the specific guidelines, how you, you know the criteria, checking boxes, et cetera. And again, as we mentioned at the beginning, you know, this is all about providing clarity for patients' family. And thank goodness that patient had a DNR because someone spoke with them, right, and, and clarified their goals for their loved one. We're trying to share all this information because it is confusing for, for providers. Imagine what it must feel like for families who are just right. literally grasping at any last string of hope for their loved ones. And so that's, again, why, why we're doing this, because you as a provider, you have to be clear on what you're doing, and you have to be clear on what you're talking about and what you're telling that family, uh, because it's confusing and they need clarity so that they can have closure too. Because well, I, And to add on to that, I think it's not just what you as the provider are saying to the family, but you as the team, right? Whenever we have a patient like this, I think it's important to talk to your residents, talk to your nurses, because what you don't want is to be pursuing this kind of testing and there to be like mixed messages from, you know, the team. So everyone has to be on the same page that really we think they're dead and we're going to test to see if we're, if they are, you know? Yeah. And it's going back to, going back to, you know, this, quote unquote, real science radio, you know, everyone, there's, there's so much misinformation out there in the media or people have had real experiences in which they've been told uh, or misinterpreted the information uh, that they've been told. And if you go back to it, it's understandable when the heart's beating and the chest is rising on the ventilator. It's, it's a very nuanced conversation. And in the end, what it really is about is for everyone listening to this podcast and, and, and Brill, myself and Teddy is, is time, which is hard because you need to take that time. You need to sit down, like, all right, here, here we go. This is, this is how all this works. This is what we're talking about when we talk about brain death. And to say those, to, to, to say those words, it, you know, this is the same thing. If in fact your loved one's brain dead, it's the same thing as if their heart stops beating. It's the same thing for them as a human being. It's also the same legally. Yeah, that's really, really important. Otherwise, nothing changes for the family. You know, they're right. they're standing there looking at their loved one who is connected to a bunch of tubes, and then, and then nothing changes, and then all of a sudden they're dead. If you don't right. really have a a good discussion with them leading into it, right? Yeah, taking all that complexity and all the variables, but really boiling it down to a, a simple statement. And, you know, anyone listening to this podcast too can become a leader in this space uh, as well, despite kind of understanding these guidelines that we're talking about, to be able to educate the whole team. Like Teddy said, the whole team's got to be on boards because one little comment, one, you know, slip up in terms of uh, using the wrong terminology uh, can, can again, be devastating. You have to walk that back. And that's not what you want to be doing at a time like this. You want, again, clarity for those for those families when it's needed most. And, and so to that end, uh, uh, Teddy, we... Again, brain death is a clinical diagnosis, but we can't always get there. Maybe they're unstable and can't finish that apnea study. Or uh, we're going to talk about other reasons why too, but this is when ancillary testing comes in. So what is, what's ancillary testing all about? 
Yeah. So ancillary testing is something that you're going to pursue when a patient doesn't meet the clinical criteria for establishing brain death, but they have an exam consistent with brain death. So what does that mean? Well, there are confounders that may interfere with a complete clinical brain death exam. I'm just going to go ahead and lift, list off a, a few of those. So if you have a patient who has cardiorespiratory instability that does not allow you to complete the apnea tests, like we talked about, you need to do an ancillary test. Um, if you have patient with injuries that don't allow you to complete a full clinical exam, let's say a spinal cord injury uh, or severe facial trauma, or they have, you know, really a severe orbital swelling and you can't see their eyes. Yeah, that's a really common one, right? A lot of our patients yeah. have terrible facial fractures and they're, they have the worst shiners and you can't pry their eyes open. Well, yeah. you can't complete that that clinical study, uh, even if it's something yes. as simple as just, you know, some periorbital fractures that led to a lot of swelling. I, uh, that's totally true. We see that. I feel like it's not uncommon, especially when these patients have terrible head trauma. Um, a few other ones to mention, hard to correct metabolic abnormalities like severe uremia or hyperaminemia, you know, those are, you know, that gets into like questions about dialysis and stuff. Like sometimes it's just a struggle on how long are you going to really work to fix these metabolic abnormalities? Um, the other things that make it difficult, you know, if you have, uh, sometimes if you have central nervous system depression medications with a really long half-life, you know, we talked about above like penovarb. Um, you may have some conditions that may mimic brain death, including locked-in syndrome and severe neuromuscular disorders like EML or, or Guillain-Barre. Yeah, rare, but something you want to be aware of for sure. And, and there are other issues uh, that may prompt ancillary testing that kind of go beyond that. This includes patient family preference, uh, for instance. If the patient if the patient's family really you know needs that, either they demand it or they need it for closure, then that's something you want to consider as their uh, provider about whether that, that warrants you to order that study or not. And sometimes it, it may make sense. The other is difficult to inter interpret spinal cord reflexes. So this can be a doozy. Yeah, because this is a tough one. Yes. It's a spinal cord. Spinal no one ever tells you about this, this is tough. Oh my gosh. I mean, how, how many times have you come in the room and you have a, you know, maybe you're at the bedside and having a tough conversation with the family. You're, you're talking about this very topic and, uh, you know, the, a loved one will be holding the hand and be like, you know, honey, do, you know, squeeze my hand or whatever, and their hand will move. And you're like, oh, yeah. God. Like, they twitch, and you're like, yeah. Oh, and they'll look at their, their squeeze my hand, and you're like, yeah, you know, gosh, that's not really what that is. But that's because spinal cord reflexes can occur in, in the studies range. The lowest one I saw was 13%, up to 75% of brain dead patients. I think it's probably on the higher end because you, you see those movements in, they can be the simple. You can, they can be simple movements of the extremities, twitches, and whatnot here or there. But they can also be complex, and that can include things like head turning or even the Lazarus sign, like the triple flexion where they're rising up out of bed. And if you look at uh, again, kind of referencing back to the media, if you go and want to start, you, you Google, you know, brain death or controversy or whatever there is about it. What you'll see are, are home videos from families uh, showing patients who are having complex uh, spinal reflexes, uh, spontaneous movements. And that is, without a doubt, uh, disconcerting, right? So first of all, again, heart's still beating, on the ventilator, chest is rising, and then you add that in, uh, of course. Uh, and so that's why, again, uh, in addition to those those very specific things that Teddy mentioned, like facial fractures can't get to the cornea, you know, or pentobarbital levels being too high, you know, we have these kind of more gray areas that you really need to consider. 
And so, Brill, what are the options when it comes to ancillary tests? Okay, so two types of ancillary tests. First type are those that evaluate blood flow to the brain. The second type are those that assess electrophysiologic function. So examples of the latter would be uh, EEG or uh, somatosensory audio or visual book potentials, something in that category. The World Brain Death Project recommends that studies that evaluate blood flow to the brain, um, those, sh those generally should be used in favor over those that assess electrophysiologic function, again, the EEGs and evoked somatosensory potentials. The most commonly used test of, of all of this is a nuclear medicine flow study. Uh, and then to a lesser extent, in some places, you'll see transcranial Doppler ultrasound. While CTA and MRA have been used to diagnose cerebral circulatory arrest, the brain death, the World Brain Death Project suggests that these modalities not be used until further research is performed. So actually, those are, you know, even though they're like low-hanging fruit, we use them for everything else. Not really great. Not as great. Death. Well, in, in the, the initial studies are actually pretty promising, but they're just, you know, you have to be very, very sure. So there's going to be more studies. And, and once those studies are complete, you'll probably in the not too distant future see the use of something like CTA. Now, the diagnosis... I think, I think we use it, we use it here. And sometimes when you have a really terrible trauma and you get that as part of their initial workup, you know, and you have that in the, in the trauma bay, you get your scan and that's part of their you know, your first scan and you're like, okay, this is, we're not in a good place. That's right. when we kind of play into it. Right. And that's exactly right. And that's because the, by using these flow studies, the way you make the diagnosis of brain death is when you see complete absence of blood flow to the brain. So if you're in the trauma bay and, and, and you're, you know, you get out of the trauma bay and get to the scanner and they have complete absence on their, on their CTA neck and head. Well, sure. Uh, that's a, that's a bad thing. That's a bad sign. Um, now, Here's something that's interesting too. I want you to kind of just think about this. And so it's important to note that loss of flow defines loss of function, right? You have no blood flow to the brain. There's no function of the brain. However, the presence of flow does not necessarily indicate the presence of function. Okay. So if you have a, you know, hint of blood flow unilaterally, uh, on the on your scan, and your clinical exam is entirely consistent with brain death. Again, this is a clinical diagnosis, so that presence of flow does not necessarily indicate the presence of any brain function. Again, remember, brain death is death of the entire brain, but it's confusing, right? And so that's yeah. why, right? That's why you really want to be careful about ordering <laughs> flow studies. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to talk about this all the time. I feel like this comes up all the time because we are aggressive in saying, oh, they're brain dead. Let's order up a brain flow study. And you're like, well, like, did we even do, did we cross the T's and dot the I's? And everyone wants to jump to the ancillary testing and you really can't do that, you know? No, I mean, yeah, so you can, but what's going to happen is you are going to have a few instances where you have to come back into the room again. I mean, this is all about the patients, the patients' families, their confusion. You have to come back in the room and say, well, you know, they're brain dead on my exam. They're apneic, but there's some blood flow to their brain. And then you're stuck in this. You got to talk it out, walk it out. And then you need, you know, typically what you do in those situations, you wait 24 hours and you repeat the study. Yeah, and you're usually by then. The negative. And usually by then, you know, uh, the deed has been done. There's no blood flow at all. But again, to the point of what we're talking about here, brain death is a clinical diagnosis. 
you don't have to get a confirmatory study. Uh, you should get it for all the reasons we mentioned. Um, and so to, for some folks that I see that have a policy of, well, for everybody that I pronounce brain death, I want to be extra sure. That's why I get this study. You know, that that's probably not the best way to practice. Uh, again, it can really muddy the water. So uh, we mentioned this a little bit before. I think this is important too, is Teddy, what about time of death? Because this is when it comes to, you know, the residents at the cover in the ICU in the middle of the night, uh, they get signed out and say, oh, room three is, is on their way out They're They're, uh, that we're doing our brain death testing and it's 2 a.m. the nurse calls and says, you know, we, we've completed everything. Mr. Mr. T is, is, is brain dead. Um, you got to do some documentation and time of death is important. This goes on certificates and all those things. So what are, what are the time of deaths, whether it's clinical or uh, with ancillary studies? Yeah. So if you're going based on the apnea test, so then the time of death should be documented by looking at the APG, whenever the arterial PCO2 reaches that target level during the apnea test, that's the time of death. And so it, uh, it's the actual timestamp on the APG when it comes from the laboratory that says, you know, PACO2 is yeah. 80, the patient didn't breathe, it's timestamped at this time, that is the time of death. Yep. Done. And then alternatively, if you, you know, like we said, if you, for some reason you can't do the apnea test and you then go to ancillary testing, that time of death is documented at the time when the ancillary test results are formally interpreted and documented by the radiologist. And, and most of the time that is the attending radiologist, um, it says, this is the time I'm reading the study equals time of death as that time. That's right. So let's finish off with a problem that, uh, um, you guys, I know have both uh, come across and I know that, I mean, the vast, a lot of our listeners will have come across is when despite your best efforts, your uh, compassion, your strong communication, doing all the right things, uh, the family says, no, um, I, yes, you tell me they're brain death, but we're not taking that patient off the ventilator. The answer is no. This is, and, this is art. <laughs> and sometimes it can be a temporary request. It can be time limited. And a lot of times though, it's an indefinite request. I can remember in my, you know, career and training and, and life every time this has happened, because it is, uh, it's one of those things that it leaves an impression on you. It's really hard to, to navigate this, but real, do you have thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll start, I think with just going back to the guidelines, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about some of the more, uh, uh I guess some of the more physician oriented, uh, issues. But per the, the World Brain Death Project, again, just going back to the, the basis of this episode, after declaration of brain death, somatic support should be discontinued unless, and there are three criteria that they mention. One, organ donation is planned. Okay. Sounds, sounds appropriate. Just as a reminder, you know, the OPO should be discussing this with the family, not you as the the caring team, just if, if you haven't heard that advice many, many times before. All right, so second criteria, two, the patient's pregnant and the decision is made to continue support for the sake of the fetus. Thank goodness I did not run into that situation. Personally. Yeah, tough, fun, tough. All right, and then the third criterion, the family requests continuation of somatic support after brain death due to religious or moral beliefs or other concerns about the use of neurologic criteria to declare death and the hospital complies with this request 
for legal or social reasons. It, well, that's yeah, and that's a real thing. You, you know, you said so. So you said it's a real thing, legal or social reasons. Now we'll talk legal in a minute here, but like for social reasons too. I mean, you don't want to be the person. No one wants to be the person. The hospital doesn't want to. The doctor doesn't. The nurse. No one involved wants to be the person saying, "Hey, forget you." You know, your 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 loved one's coming off the ventilator. I don't care what you think. And again, but that is why these guidelines, 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 specific guidelines, um, are so so important yeah well let's yeah. talk about the, the easier one first the the legal exception teddy what, what yeah what's the legal? well it's interesting because there's really only one state in the country that allows for religious objection so unless you're in new jersey that's the only state that allows that it doesn't really apply outside of there american academy of neurology has actually published a position statement on this very issue i think it is on point this is another one that's well worth reading not so much because it's going to necessarily help you with discussions or get you out of that situation. But again, I think informing how you think as a physician, but also how you think as a physician who works in a larger, uh, or a provider, I should say, who works in a larger system, again, in following these guidelines. And so they make some very specific recommendations. I'm going to, there's a bunch of them, but I'm going to read three of them that I think hit pretty hard. So the first says that although we respect the autonomy of patients and those acting on uh, their behalf, the AAN recognizes that both legally and ethically, autonomy is not absolute and does not include the right to receive desired but unjustified medical treatment. Patients, loved ones do not have absolute autonomy to demand unjustified medical treatment. The second is that there's some harm or potential for harm to the patient, to the family, or the patient, uh, uh, patient's healthcare team if you have indefinite accommodation of these requests to keep the patients on the ventilator. And these potential harms include mistreatment of the newly dead patient, deprivation of dignity of that patient, the provision of false hope with resultant distrust, prolonging the grieving process for the family, and undermining the professional responsibility of the physician to achieve a timely and accurate diagnosis. And when that's not done, that you know there's potential for societal harm that can arise when we have negotiated standards or inconsistent standards. So again, truth. I mean, this is this is spot on. And then I think the the last thing I want to mention is that the AN and the World Brain Death Project both recommend that you need that your hospital needs to have in writing that there's a there's a time frame for this, some wiggle room, right? Maybe family's coming in from uh, out of the country and will be there within 24 hours. Well, okay, let's let's give some wiggle room, right? Or in the situation where that family is not going to budge. They will not allow you, according to them, to ever take that ventilator off. Well, hey, it's not, it's actually not my decision as a physician caring for your loved one. It's actually hospital policy. And what that hospital policy is, is that the accommodations be made for no longer than 48 hours. Yeah. And I think that's where I've seen this happen uh, most commonly, especially out here in, in Hawaii. Sometimes there are family members, not just flying from a neighboring island, but from Samoa, you know flights that are not all that easy to get. Um, and so, you know, perhaps that has some differences depending on the location that you're at, but I agree. It's, it's nice to be able to point to something in writing, as we've said a few times before, print it out, you know, it's, that should be the conversation starter, uh, just to create a basis for further discussion about, okay, what is your end goal here? And, and 
what can we discuss so that everybody ends up agreeing on something, right? That's that's really the goal here. Care for yeah. the patient, care for their family. Yeah, that's good stuff. That clarity, All right, so that clarity is important. Should we wrap up with some uh, quick hits? There you go. Take off. Let's do it. Okay, so number one, when it comes to death, irreversible cessation of heart and lungs, aka your heart stops, your you know respiratory arrest, is the exact same as irreversible cessation of the function of the entire brain. So brain death is equivalent to death. That's a, a message that we should make sure all the trainees understand as well. Number two, incorrect brain death diagnosis and poor communication fuel public distrust. Very, very important, right? We should understand and be experts in this field when we're dealing with these patients because we don't want to make the wrong diagnosis and and fuel this distrust that's sometimes out there. Uh, and then the third thing I think I want to remind everyone is that brain death is a clinical diagnosis uh, and there's minimal criteria for testing, which must be met before you actually start testing. All right. And then I'll well, let you go. Four more to wrap it up. Presence of a cervical collar alone does not negate otherwise complete clinical testing. Okay. Don't, don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. <laughs> Flow studies are preferred for ancillary testing if you are going to proceed with ancillary testing. Loss of flow to the brain defines loss of function, but presence of flow doesn't necessarily indicate presence of function, which is why you need to think about ordering those ancillary studies before you just go ahead and hit the button. And finally, somatic support should generally be offered for mo no more than 48 hours after the time of death, uh, however it was determined. Fantastic. So thanks everyone very much for listening to Behind the Knife. Respond, man. Yeah, and for listening to the Big T Trauma Series. Jason, Teddy, it's always a pleasure to have you on. We love talking about trauma. We've, yeah, got some, uh, we've got some great episodes planned uh, for the future. These will continue regularly, so I hope you enjoy them. Uh, do you know if you are listening to Behind the Knife regularly? Please, please, please uh, do us a favor. Please go to uh, you know Apple, Spotify, whatever you're listening to, and uh, leave us a review. It does take about a minute. Uh, they do ma it matters for a bunch of stuff, uh, and so if you do enjoy us, please do so. It's very helpful. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.